Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Actung, actung. Uh, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk and to the final instalment of my conversation with the amazing Matt McKinnon-Patterson. So we're going to pick up his story straight away from when Matt was making tea for all the surrounding soldiers in a small provincial town in northern Italy to finding a beautiful Italian girl. The officer come, Philip Fell, come to me and he said, you made the tea? I said, yes. You can cook. I said, no, I can't cook. He said, get yourself down to the albergo, he said. Show her how to do the cooking. So I had to go down there. But he said, when we go out on operations, you know, we like to shoot up things. He said, when we get back, you go down there. Don't bother cleaning the equipment and all that. So I went down to the albergo and I started telling her how to do what you did with things. And... um, she had a wonderful niece, or was it a granddaughter? I've never seen anything like her. Jet black hair, white skin, beautiful shape, loveliest girl you've ever known. I was in love, I was loved her, but I wasn't in love with her, but oh, she was wonderful. <laughs> and I'd never, we hadn't seen her before, because she used to keep in the kitchen. But now I've got access to the kitchen. 
and I meet her. And every time I used to go down, I used to sit with her. Right. And we used to sit and talk, because she wanted to learn English, and I'm t trying to pick up Italian. And she said to me one day, she said, every time you boys, or you dead religious, she wanted to become a nun. <laughs> every I'm not boring me now, am I? No, not at all. Every time you boys go out, she said, I pray you come back safely. So I tried. When I went back one night, one of the lads is moaning and groaning about stuck in this potty little village. <coughs> said, why can't we go move to the big city? So I said, well, he said, you can't. I said, because Regina prays you come back. Well, tell her, bloody well, pray that we go away. <laughs> so I said, well, all right then. So I went to Regina and I said, when she said, she goes to pray, I said, look, the boys don't want you to pray anymore when they come back. They want to pray that they go from here to somewhere bigger. She said, I pray. You want to go? I said, well, not really. I pray they go, you stay. Next day, the officer comes out. <laughs> Everybody on the truck, moving to the big city. Whoa, whoa, Regina's president answered. Now, wait a minute, she did pray that I wouldn't go. So when the officer comes along and said, he said, how'd you get on the truck? I said, well, I don't know if I'm included. He went off, come back, he said, no, you're not included. He said, Captain MacDonald sent a couple of the boys down to the next village right. with a horse and buggy. Could you stay and wait till that horse and buggy comes back and tell them where we've gone? They'd gone on to Alba. I stayed. I, came, I saw them down to Alba and came back. How am I going to get to catch you up? Okay, he says. Oh, that was it. These two came back with a horse and buggy. Yep. Next day, I had another couple of days at Castino. Next day, we catch the rest up. And Captain Ray Donald says to me, Oh, Scotty, he says, That buggy I've got there, he says, it's got to go back to Castino. Can you take, will you take it back? So I said, Well, how the heck am I going to catch up with you lot? Because they were going on to a place called Cuneo. I said, uh, use the horse. I went back. She'd prayed I'd come back again. I came back. This time I had to pray, tell her not to. Next time it's time for me to go. I left the buggy there. I got on the horse, went along the road, round the corner, you know, very, very Hollywood acting there. <laughs> and uh, I caught them up eventually at Cuneo. Did you ever see her again? No. Uh, I was courting, don't forget. Of course. And uh, anyway, she, she wasn't. Wasn't a courting type. She was too religious, but she was. When we left the last time, when it's time for me to go, with the horse, we went up to the little chapel, and we sat, not to, not touching, but to, yeah. and we, we prayed, and the organ was playing, Handel's <laughs> Largo. Oh, very romantic. Anyway, I got there, and uh, I, I I went through one town. Where the, it was called Bra. I know. I stayed the night. And I stayed in this little uh, uh, albergo thing. And all the partisans were in there. Right. And I got in and uh, put the horse in the stable and fed it and that. And yep. Next thing I know was the, all the partisans are trying to figure who I am. Right. When they find out who I am, oh, great, they're around me. Vino, vino, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
hey, want to go, want to go, you know, half a dozen girls. I said, no, 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 I don't drink. I don't want a woman. I didn't know the words of the song, so I just kept on going. Eventually, I get to Cuneo, where the rest of the boys are, and we go for dinner. And Buck McDonald's, a big dining room there, big table. And Buck McDonald's there, you know, and then he called me over, Scotty, come and tell me where you got all these last two or three days. So I started telling them. Mm. And I said, and I got to this town called Bra. I just went in there for some support. I said, but I got wine, women, and I told them what I was doing. You know, what happened? Women, girl at my bedroom, door said she should sleep with me. <clears throat> Everything laid on. Suddenly I looked along the table and they're all chatting to each other. They stopped listening to me. So I says to the captain, I said, they're not listening. So the captain says, what's the matter? And somebody said, wrong block, right operation. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of my story with them. <laughs> anyway, when we got to Cuneo, they... Oh, when, as I'm riding along on my horse, I've got to be very, very careful because the political groups are at each other's throat. Yeah. <clears throat> I had to wear a blue scarf yep. through the Democrats, red scarf through the Communists, and green scarf through the Republicans. Right. And <clears throat> everywhere you went, you would, you'd, you would have to be very, very careful because the Germans had broken up, and so if any Germans are on the run back yeah. home... They're not going to stop and say hello to you. No. A comedy turn, there was a, a British officer <coughs> in a jeep with his driver. And he come driving up alongside me, and I'm on horseback here. And he says, uh, uh, Dove, Dove Alba. I said, Alba, straight on, sir. Pontoon, cross the river, you're there. Ah, ah. Dove, Dove, uh, petrol, petroleum. Petrol, or whatever it was, naphtha or something. And I said, yes, yes, sir. I said, you're, you're all right. The Americans are just coming in there now with their, uh, their mobile vehicles. I said, you'll get, you'll get petrol there. Oh, 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 oh yeah. Grazie, grazie. Arrivederci. I said, excuse me, sir. See, si, see. Si. I said, I've been talking to you in English and you've been talking to me in Italian. <laughs> and the driver's sitting there killing himself with laughter. He said, oh, 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 arrivederci. And off he went. You <laughs> <laughs> know, so I didn't realise you're going to meet a British bloke up there somewhere. And then I met a Brazilian. There were Brazilians were in there. There were, yeah. And uh, he's walking along with a map and he's, he could he could walk through the blooming Brazilian jungle, but he can't find his way through northern Italy. <laughs> Anyway, when we got to Cuneo, we found that uh, they were shooting, shining people up against the wall. Fascists. Fascists, yeah. collaborators, anything. And the big yeah, it all one, got pretty ugly in Italy at the end, oh, didn't it? It was even a little girl about 14 or 15 shot. Oh, dear. And I often wonder if I'd been there at the time, if I'd have pushed her aside and said, take me. But one of the things that was strange, they've got about half a dozen women sitting on a little platform and they've got a chair on that platform. And the two, two of the men go over and grab the first one, drag her over, screaming and shouting, and she sat down on the thing and then they take her hair off. 
the American two uh, two. The, the the British the British Army rifle Lee Enfield was a three o three. They were they were okay at the time. Cause don't forget what you've got, the enemy's got. Yeah. As long as you've not got something. There's much of a muchness. There was only one thing he had that we hadn't got. Yeah. It's what was called the Nebel Werfer. Yes. Did you know about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morning mini. Yeah. And um, it used to fire a round of bombs, one in the middle. And if you're standing over way over there, and suddenly you hear this coming down, one, mm. two, three, four, get up and run, because there's one in the middle coming for you. Yeah. <clears throat> that was that was the only thing. And what now, about the Bren gun? Bren gun was okay. It was quite a good, useful thing. Yeah. The big thing is. You're not using it all the time. No. You might use it when they tell you to, oh, fire at that building there, you know. Um, like when we were taking Alba, mm. we had two or three of the lads with, with the brain guns. Um, what was that? Point five. Boys rifle. Yeah. Uh, did you ever have a pit? Eh? Did you ever have the pit? Ah, but we didn't have one in the such, but we had them in the infantry. Right. Oh, what did everyone think of those? By the time you've blooming well loaded it up, flipping jerry's gone past you. <laughs> <laughs> they were, but they were good, they were, they were useful, but you had to... You didn't... You, you, what you did, you fired that thing, you, know, you picked it up and ran quick. Yeah. Because, you know, if you miss... He's got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, most of it was self-preservation. Yep. And do you, do you, I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to have said that you develop a kind of sixth sense. Instinctively, you know when danger is around. Do you think, do you think... That was something you picked up. Well, you maybe, maybe. I would, I would say really that what we're talking about is how many times did you get that sixth sense and nothing happened. Mm. So, so what are we talking about? Well, I'll give you an example. I remember, I remember talking to a German paratrooper. Uh, it was in Casino Town. Yeah. And he said he was in the ruins. It was the third battle. And he said he was standing up and he yeah. said something made him get down on the ground and right. literally a second later, a shell came past. Right. And he said or he could only explain that as a sixth sense that had been built up through experience of just being in a combat I th scenario. I think, I think you... I, I, I don't know how the sixth sense works at... And I, I agree with you that you do get that sense and you you do it and then you say, oh, good, I could see that happening. Yeah. But as I say, how many times did you see it happening and nothing did happen? Right. And is it more or less just part of the part of the life? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm walking along the road. In Italy, when you know, when I was back in back in Naples and Pompey, and I'm walking along the road, and suddenly I hear a whistle, and I'm always I'm always ready down on the ground. Sure. Because 
it sounded like a shell coming. But and you were say, you were saying earlier on that you had, you know, your nerves were shot to pieces at one point. But oh, by yeah. the time you joined the SAS, yeah, you were fine again. Of course I was. Yeah, you recovered. A bit of rest. I'm going to tell you what I put that down to. Yeah. It's the same thing that got me to join up. I could have at any time come away from the Argyles through nerves, through getting another job, uh, seeing a notice on the notice board that says, Technic Clerk wanted, I could have done that. Leave the infantry, go and sit in a nice little grove, you know. Lovely. Pride. Yes. Suddenly, it's stronger than fear. Right. And it's the background to courage. Yep. And when everything all around is falling down, and you're there, and you think, no, I'm going to go. Right. I'm going ahead. And I think that's what got me through most of it. Yeah. As I say, <clears throat> I could have I could have easily dodged out any time. I when we were coming home, we we travelled down to Naples. Yeah. So when was that? Was that still in nineteen forty five? That was nineteen forty five. Yeah. The war's finished. Yeah. And we're coming home and we've got a train up to go to Burma. Mm. And and um I must, I went to the canteen in in the Nafi canteen in Naples while we're waiting for the ship home, which was actually the Empress of Jap Empress of Scotland. Right. No, the Empress of Japan, but it was renamed the Empress of Scotland, right. and I always took offence at that. Anyway, I'm sitting in the canteen and I see another bloke, <coughs> and I walk over to him. I don't fancy seeing you, and we chat. He said, he said, I've just come out. He'd only just arrived out there. Now, you remember I told you that <clears throat> I was a lance corporal and I went to be an instructor yes. at Lanark. Yeah. Well, he was in the same group as me going up to become an instructor. Yeah. This is 1943. I left there when I got to 19 because I wanted to get into the battle. He didn't. He sat it out at Lanark. <laughs> He's sitting out there in Italy, <coughs> drinking a nice cup of coffee or whatever he was doing. Amazing. And a lot of people did that. Yeah. When he came home from, from Italy, and even when I came home from Germany later on, and you're in uniform, and you're standing in a bus queue or something, you get these women coming up and saddling up beside you. They say, you in the army? He said, yes. My husband's in the army, but he never talks about it. And off they go. In the end, I got fed up with this. Mm. So when one of them came up to me next time, I said, wait a minute, ooh, ooh, ooh. Why he doesn't talk to you about it, lady, is either A, he's nothing to talk about. B, he's incapable of talking. Three, he's not going to tell you because he's done knocking about with some other woman. Four, how do you know he was in the army? Oh, he told me. Oh, but he never talks about it, does he? <laughs> and then you find out the truth that they weren't even they were in the army, but they were base job. Right. And uh, that that was one of the big things. Well, an awful lot of people, you know, didn't see much action. I mean, yeah. you know, if you look at British Second Army in Normandy, for example, 
over 40% were service corps. Don't mention Normandy to somebody from Italy. <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, no, no, we, you see, we understood in the army, it takes 10 men back at base to keep one man in the line. Now those 10 men, of course, includes ATS girls, NAFI girls, of course. military police, anything. But it takes 10 men to keep one man in the line. So what are these other 10? What are these 10 telling, talking? Yeah. When the war finished and I came home and uh, they trained us up to go to Burma. And uh, so... Oh, were you ready to do that? You were prepared to do that? Yeah, I was quite happy. And uh, we were up at Colchester at the time, training, a place called Wivenhall. And, and we got a big howitzer gun just delivered to the SAS. This great big howitzer gun. <coughs> and we're out practicing. And lo and behold, word comes through Japan surrendered. Right. It's my birthday, 14th of August, yes. 1945. And so old Robbo turns and says to me, he said, well, that was my corporal. I said, I think we'll celebrate your birthday with 21 gun salute. How fantastic, because so you're only 21, aren't you? I got Goodness. 21 gun salute. How brilliant. So, and then I went from there and they sent me out to Germany with a war crimes investigation unit. Oh, really? There was two of them. One was SAS. Yeah. Trying to find the Germans that had shot, oh, they must have shot nearly 50 or... Yeah. SES men. And uh, that was down in Wuppertal. Mm. I was supposed to go there, but they didn't need me. But they needed me by Doinhausen. Right. Because they wanted somebody that could do clerical work. I, I don't know where they got the idea. I, oh, I'd been through a clerical course in between while I'm waiting. So I went out there to by Doinhausen. Mm. And we got affidavits from people that have been in Auschwitz, every place you could think of. Yeah. Some of the stories haven't come out yet. They're coming out gradually. Sure. But I think one of the most hard, I, I was, well, I, I went out there and when I got there, there was a Sergeant Major was in charge of the clerical function. Mm. And he did the whole thing. And, um, I, I I I went in to take take over from him while he went on leave. Yeah. But he'd gone for a bit longer than two weeks. And um, I had to read these affidavits, depositions. What we used to do was well and, and then I'd send them to Judge Advocate General's branch, right? And um, what we used to do was you'd send a a jeep out with a driver, an officer, and an interpreter. Right. The interpreters were usually little Jewish boys yeah. from um, from Romania or anything else like that, and they would uh, they would interrogate. And I said to one, I said, how, what, "What do you do if you you, know, if you how do you manage to make them talk?" Oh, so that's quite easy," he says. See, what I do is it. See, I've, I've got to remember, I can't do things out of cruelty. 
They said, I get a bucket of water. They said, we've got a bucket of kettle of hot water. She said, put the bucket down by his leg. I pour the boiling hot water into it. Then I take him, blindfold him. He's already handcuffed. I lift his leg, lift his leg up. In it goes. He talks. Wow. I said, Look. I said, oh, you can't do that. I said, I don't do that. He said, well, I've got his eyes shut and gotten and I moved the bucket and put cold water there. He don't know the difference. <laughs> He's blindfolded. He said, he opens up like that. <laughs> Wow. And they, they were telling me, but what, what rather upset me with that was you've got Jewish girls who were prisoners in yeah. concentration camps yeah. squealing on another girl yeah. because she was making up to one of the Jew German guards to, to get some more food and things like that. The, the one big story that I always remember was the the German guard, woman guard, all these Jews are getting sucked into the middle. One of these Jewish women's got a little baby, you know. Yeah. And this guard takes the baby off her, takes her back, and the child grows up as her child, her son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes everywhere with her, and she looks after her like her mother. Then one day, the good old Lord Adolf gives the order, all Jews are to be exterminated. And she takes that little boy's hand and like any nice mother, takes him to the gas chamber door and says goodbye to him and lets him go in. And I thought, if that's the depth of humanity. Yeah, yeah, I know. No, it's, it's anyway, apart from that. But it must have been fascinating. I mean, what were your views, of, what were your impressions of war-torn Germany? I mean, it must have looked absolutely... Two things you go through and think serves you bloody well right. Yeah, no, sure. And then you sort of look at the the, the refugees and you think yeah. sad. Yeah. And you give them something. Yeah. If you've got it. Yeah. You you see you're brought up with this Christianity that that you suddenly think yes well no matter how bad they are I've got to try and help them a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I mean, it must have looked so bashed about, didn't eh? it? I mean, Germany must have looked so bashed about. It was flattened. Yeah. I come through Hanover, and it was flattened. <coughs> well, by that time, <coughs> you're going through two, a ploughed field <coughs> of stone, and the road. It's like going through a ploughed field. A big plough had been through it. Yeah. It's all, all up the side. Yeah. Side. Huh. Amazing. So how long did you stay in the army then? Five years roughly. Really? October 42 to April, May 47. Well, that's it for my talk with Matt McKinnon-Patterson. I do hope you all enjoyed it. Cheerio and see you soon.